All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But God demonstrates his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. To Martha he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Before we open God's word together this morning, let's bow our heads together and ask his guidance on our study of his word. Our Father, as we come to this time in the worship service, our focus is upon your word. It is through your word that you speak to us today. It is through your word that we are informed, that we are given the information that we need, and it is through God the Holy Spirit that that information is then taken and it is uh, made applicable to us so that we can use it and that we can uh, grow spiritually. For the growth process, the maturation process, is overseen by God the Holy Spirit. But our wills are involved at every moment of every day to walk by means of the Spirit or to walk in our sin nature. Father, we pray that we might be challenged as we study Ephesians, that we are to walk by the Spirit, that you have provided for us a wealth of assets and provisions and blessings beyond anything that we can imagine. And it is on that basis that we should live. And one of the sad realities is that as wealthy as we are spiritually, there are far too many who live as street people, as homeless people, as people who are at the bottom of the poverty ladder because of their either their ignorance of our wealth in Christ or their refusal to live on the basis of the riches that we have been given in Christ. May we each be challenged as we study this epistle to understand who we are in Christ, and how we are to walk as believers in the midst of a spiritual warfare that always surrounds us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Ephesians. It's my custom over the years that when I begin a book study is to do a flyover to teach the whole book in 45 minutes or an hour or so, so that we can understand what it looks like from above. If any of you have ever been up in an aircraft flying over your neighborhood or an area you're familiar with where you can look down and see you know, the streets and the creeks and the roads and everything and the houses uh, from above, you realize you get a different perspective than what you have if you're driving around at ground level. And so often when we're studying the scriptures, we lose sight of that overview. We lose sight of what the purpose of an epistle or a historical book is because we are looking at all of the details. We forget what the forest looks like because we're looking not just at the trees, we're looking at the cell structure of each individual leaf at times. And so it's important to have this overview so that we can constantly go back and forth between the details of a text and the overall Context That is what helps to prevent us from going off uh, into, the, uh, into the weeds, as it were, when we're uh, studying the Scripture. Ephesians is a remarkable epistle. There are many who have taught it several times because it is believed and has been believed, especially by a number of dispensationalists, that this is the highest revelation of the mystery of the church age given to us. And I think there is a lot of truth to that. But it is, should not be to the exclusion of the rest of God's Word. There is no part of God's Word, even if you have the red, red letters in your Bible, that are more inspired 
are more the thoughts of Christ than any other. They are all breathed out by God, Paul says in 2 Timothy 3:16 and 17, for our uh, equipping, for our training. They are breathed out by God for teaching so that all of God's counsels should be taught. There have been some pastors and some dispensationalists who have only taught the Pauline epistles because he was the apostle to the Gentiles. That is a practical denial of First Timothy or Second Timothy three sixteen and seventeen. There are others who just teach the New Testament. In fact, I have heard and I have quoted to this congregation at times a very well known, uh, popular, young, cutting edge, uh, so called cutting edge pastors in this country who have said that we don't need to ever teach the Old Testament. But you cannot understand the New Testament if we do not understand the Old Testament. Jesus, on the road to Emmaus, when he shows up with these two disciples who are trying to figure out what has just happened in terms of his uh, death, burial, and resurrection, uh, and they haven't heard of his resurrection yet, they're trying to put it all together. And what did Jesus do? He went back to the Old Testament, and he started in Genesis and walked them through to the end of, because in the Hebrew Bible, the last book is Second Chronicles. He walked them through to Second Chronicles, showing all of the places that prophesied and taught about him and that he was the fulfillment of the Old Testament. There is so much that we can learn in all of the Scripture. But Ephesians is one of those that strikes close to the mission and the purpose of the church and who we are in the body of Christ. And this is something that is so often lost today. And for the last several months, I have been reading Ephesians through over and over again, both in the English and in the Greek, and things have just stood out to me as I have done that. And I encourage you over the coming probably years that we're in Ephesians that you take the time, for example, we'll be in the first chapter for several, uh, probably several months, and you can begin your Sunday morning by simply reading through the first chapter of Ephesians. And then when we get to the second chapter, read the second chapter and so on as, as preparation. So when we come to Ephesians, there are basically three divisions. The first, it talks about the wealth the spiritual wealth that we have in Christ. The phrase that is often used is our riches. It is what God has provided for us. We have phrases like uh, verse 3, that God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. These are our possession. They They form our new identity in Christ. And that is the basis in these first three chapters to come to understand how we are to live. One of the things that we'll see that happens here is as you make your progression from chapter 1 to chapter 2 to chapter 3, it is, it is moving in a direction. It culminates at a climax in chapter 3 of the significance of the church, not the local church, but the body of Christ because there is something new and distinct in this dispensation that has never before happened in for every single believer. We are unique in all of history in what God has done for us and what God has provided for us in giving us this, as it were, spiritual bank account that many of us live as if it doesn't exist. And so that is the focal point, the trajectory of those first three chapters. It lays the foundation for what comes up in chapter 4 and 5, at least through 6, 9, and that is the second section, which talks about the walk of the believer. Because of who we are, understanding our position in Christ, understanding the riches, the wealth that we have in Christ, we are therefore to live a certain way. We are to Walk is the metaphor that the scripture uses for our spiritual life and our spiritual advance. And that culminates in 6-9, and then there is a closing challenge in 
chapters uh, 4 and 5 and up through 6 and 9, there are five times that Paul says walk. He uses that command to walk a certain way. But we get to chapter 6, verse 10, and it changes. Instead of walking, we are to stand firm. We are to stand in the power of God. And this relates to the spiritual warfare that goes on. Because the problem isn't just the problem of our own sin nature that is corrupt and still tempts us and drives us to disobedience to God. But we have, as Paul will develop, especially at the beginning of chapter 2 and throughout the rest of this epistle, we deal with this this world system, this system of thinking that just comes right out of the uh, brain of Satan, and that that defines the course of the world, the thinking of the civilizations of man that are in rebellion against God. And so that external enemy of the world entices our sin nature, and it provides rationales uh, for our disobedience to God. But behind all of this, there is an invisible spiritual war. We refer to this as the spiritual warfare or the angelic conflict, the angelic rebellion, Satan's rebellion. Different terms are used. Barnhouse used the phrase in his book, uh, invisible war. Others have used other terms, but it all relates to the same thing, that we live in the midst of a of a cosmic conflict that surrounds us and that has an incredible impact on the things that happen in human history and human civilization day in and day out, culminating in these attacks that are directed towards the believer to ignore, to deny, to reject that which we have been given in Christ. And so that gives us the the main overview of what Ephesians is all about. So we have these three divisions, the wealth of the believer, our walk because of our wealth, and then our warfare. So in this first section, which covers from verse 3 to chapter 3, verse 21, we have this focus on the God's distribution of this wealth of spiritual riches to those in Christ. This phrase, in Christ, is a critical phrase that is repeated 17 times in these first three chapters. It has to do with our position in Christ, our privileges in Christ as believers. The phrase in Christ is unique to those who are believers in this church age. No other believer in any other age has been identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. It could not happen in the Old Testament because Jesus had not yet come. It does not happen in the tribulation period because there is a a restoration of God's plan to Israel. The Holy Spirit, the restrainer, is removed at the rapture, and so there will be a different dynamic uh, occurring during those seven years. And then, of course, we will be uh, with the Lord, ruling with him, and he will be on the earth during the thousand-year rule and reign of Christ. So so the church age, as it were, is it represents the highest and best that God provides for believers. So this is described, and it begins, the description begins in uh, the first the first part in verses 3 through 14, talking about these riches in Christ. And in this whole section, I want to draw your attention to these phrases and verses. And Ephesians 1 7 talks about the riches of God's grace. Ephesians 1 18, the riches of his inheritance. That's our possession, a possession that he has given to us, and we'll have to spend some time understanding what it means to have this inheritance in Christ and its impact on how we live, how we think today. In Ephesians 2.7, Paul now expands on the riches of grace to the exceeding riches of his grace. And then in chapter 3, verse 8, he describes them as the unsearchable riches of Christ. This is what we have, who we are in Christ. When we begin this section of 
chapter three, starting I mean chapter one, verse three down to verse fourteen, there's it's one sentence in the Greek. It is the longest sentence. Paul loves long sentences, but if you have English Bibles, they usually chop it up. But there are three divisions in this sentence. There is a division related to the Father and what the Father has provided for us. There is the second section that relates to the Son and what the Son provides for us. And the third section is related to the Holy Spirit and what the Holy Spirit provides for us. And each one of these sections of this introduction end with a statement of praise to God, or to the Father, to the Son, and then to the Holy Spirit for what they have uh, provided for us. In one three we read, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Now you'll notice that I have underlined those first person plural pronouns. This is important in a study of Ephesians to understand to whom these pronouns refer. Later, he will talk about the Gentiles using they. Here, he uses an inclusive pronoun, we or us, first person plural pronoun, and it will be contrasted as we go through the first chapter with the second person plural pronoun, which... All y'all know is y'all. So who, who's the y'all and who's the we? Now that's important. And one of, the, of our first clues to this is going to come in the second section of this opening uh, statement of blessing towards the Trinity where he talks about the Son and says regarding the Son in... Um, in verse 11, in him also we have obtained an inheritance. Notice, we have obtained. Who's the we? Have obtained an inheritance being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. That we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. Who's the we who first trusted in Christ? The verb trusted is in the perfect tense, which means it is talking about a completed action in the past. And it is very likely that this is a major clue here that the we is not talking about we believers. It is talking about we Jewish believers. We are the first ones who trusted in Jesus as Messiah. This is covered in Acts chapter 2 through uh, through 9 before Paul, the Apostle Paul is saved and becomes the Apostle to the Gentiles. After that, there is then the inclusion that we read about with Peter in Acts chapters 10 and 11 as Gentiles are brought into this new body of Christ. And so we get a further indication of this when we get down to uh, chapter 3, verse 1, where Paul says, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for you Gentiles. If indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which was given to me for you. Now, many commentators, if not most, say that he doesn't shift to this Jew-Gentile distinction until he gets to chapter 3. But there's no exegetical basis for claiming that. They just assert it. One of the things we always have to be careful about is assertions without evidence. And so it seems that to be consistent, we have to see that what Paul is doing from the beginning is talking about what first the Jews had in Christ and then the Gentiles, and because what chapters 1 through 3 focus on is driving us to the end point of chapter 3 that, well, it starts in chapter 2, but ends in chapter 3, that the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile is down. It's gone. The law is removed, and now there is peace because Jew and Gentile come together at the cross 
and become one in Christ, one in the body of Christ. And that distinction between Jew and Gentile is no longer significant. That's what Paul talks about in Galatians uh, chapter 3 when he talks about the baptism by means of the Holy Spirit, that because we have all been baptized by one spirit, there is no longer Jew or Gentile, male or female, bond or slave. He's not saying that those distinctions don't exist in reality. You still have Jews, you still have Gentiles, you still have men, you still have women, you still have slaves, and you still have those who are free. But in the Old Testament law, those who were male and who were free were the ones who could and were Jewish, were the only ones who could get into the inner area of the temple and worship God. There were these distinctions God had for various reasons. But now that's broken down because the veil has, as the writer of Hebrews says, the veil has been rent from top to bottom. And when Jesus died on the cross, when he said, it is finished, it is completed, the veil in the temple split from top to bottom, opening the way to the Holy of Holies. And so what this all is talking about is now there is a, uh, a unity in the body of Christ, a new entity, a new organism that is unique to this church age. And the distinctions that were significant under the a Mosaic Covenant are no longer applicable to today. And all of this just drives us to this great conclusion he comes to in chapter 3, that this means that, that we are one in this new body and Christ is the head. And that is foundational because he's going to then develop that in chapter 4. So as we look at chapter 1, we see his praise to the Father in the first, in verses 3, 4, and 5. And then he comes to uh, talk about, he ends with the doxology, where he says uh, in verse 10, to the, uh, I believe, to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he made us acceptable in the beloved. And then... In the next verse, and that was verse 6, and then the next verse in verse 7 we read, In him we have redemption through his blood. This is the Lord Jesus Christ. In him we have redemption uh, through his blood. Now when we get there, we're going to have to go to the parallel passage in Colossians 2, 12 to 14 to get a better, clearer understanding of this because he says, In him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. And we've studied this and broken it down that there are four different areas of forgiveness described in the Bible with relationship to the cross. The first I call a forensic forgiveness because according to Colossians 2, 12 to 14, that all of our sins identified in many translations as a certificate of debt was nailed to the cross. That's a historical event that occurred in A.D. 33. And with it being nailed to the cross, it is wiped out. That certificate of death is eradicated. And the word afiemi, which is often translated forgiveness, comes out of an economic background, and it has to also do, and is used this way many times, is the eradication of a debt, the forgiveness of a debt. And charizomai, the other word that's used for forgiveness, is also used in that way. So that's objective. Jesus paid the penalty for all sin on the cross, so the sin is not the issue for people anymore. It's not to go beat them over the head with their sins and you have to repent of your sins. Their sins are paid for. The issue is they're still spiritually dead. Paul will get to that in Ephesians 2.1, that we're born spiritually dead in our trespasses and sins. But God, when we get down to uh, verse 5, it starts with that phrase, or, or rather verse 4, but God, we're born spiritually dead, but God in the riches of his mercy has made us alive again in him. And so Christ is the one who provides us with redemption, with forgiveness of sin, and then there is a another doxological or statement of praise there uh, where he says 
uh, in which he made to abound toward us uh, in, in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself. And then when we get down to the doxology part, that's at the end of chapter, uh, verse 11, uh, him who works all things according to the counsel of his of his will, who first trusted in Christ, should be to the praise of his glory. And then we come to that third section, which is two verses related to the Holy Spirit, and there the emphasis on the fact that those who are redeemed, those who are saved, are sealed by the Spirit, foreshadowing what Paul will say again in in the second part of the book, in Ephesians 4.30, that we are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. It is, as it were, that we are branded so that it is clear that we are owned and identified uh, by God as his. And so that concludes those first 14 verses. And then there is a prayer in verses 15 to 23 from which we learn some key principles of prayer. It begins with thanksgiving. And we are told that Paul does this every time he prays, always making mention of them in my prayers that, as he says at the end of First Thessalonians 5, we are to pray without ceasing. Prayer needs to be cultivated as a consistent and regular discipline in our lives, not just something we do on the fly, but something we give some attention to because we are communicating with the creator God of the universe. If we were to be granted an audience with the Queen of England, or if we were able to get access to the Oval Office and meet with the President of the United States, how would we structure what we were going to say? Would we just go in there and wing it? A lot of people would, but most people would think about it. This is an important opportunity we get to think about what we want to say. We can't say everything. What are we going to focus on? And so we see through the ages that mature believers have have cultivated a thoughtful prayer life where they have crafted their prayers, thought about their prayers, and they have presented thoughtful petitions before the Lord. A pattern that we see here is this pattern of giving thanks, but also a focus in the second part of our our beginning in verse 18 down through the end of the chapter. Uh, Paul outlines specific things that he says. He begins verse 18 by saying that... that, um, the, uh, uh, the, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened. And that's a perfect tense also in the Greek. That means that at salvation, the eyes of our soul are enlightened. That means that before we're saved, often there is a veil of obscurity. We read the Bible. It doesn't make sense. We don't understand it. But when we are saved and we are uh, given a new life in the indwelling of God the Holy Spirit who illuminates our minds to the truth, then at that point we have been enlightened so that now we can come to understand the word. And what we focus on in our understanding is the majesty of God, verse 19, his exceeding greatness and power. And we go on to think about what he has done for us. Verse 20, he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, seated him at the right hand of the heavenly places. Now, why is that important? Because what we're going to find out in chapter 2 is then when we are saved, we are seated with him in the heavenlies. So we have to start with part the first part. He is seated in the heavenlies in this position, and then we are seated with him in the heavenlies at the time of our salvation. We get to verse 6. Uh, we learn that we are made, or verse 5 of chapter 2, uh, we're made alive together with Christ, and we're raised up together, and we are made to sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And so this prayer focuses on the fact that we should uh, grow and mature in understanding and in knowledge that is essential to our spiritual growth, and that knowledge relates to an understanding of who Christ is and who we are in him. Then we come to chapter 2, and chapter 2 focuses on what God provides for us 
in a new position. That before we are saved, we are dead. We are spiritually dead. We have no real life at all. There is no relationship with God. And when we are saved, when we trust in Christ for our salvation, we are made alive again. We are given a new position. We are given a new purpose in Christ. And that's described in chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, verses that are familiar to many of us. And it begins, Paul says, you, he made alive, that is added to make sense. The idea of being made alive comes in in, in, um, in verse 4. You, he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. When did they become dead? They were born spiritually dead because of Adam's sin. And then he goes on to say it's not simply a problem of being spiritually dead, but as they have grown, they have been influenced by the demonic forces and they have been influenced by uh, the... the um, uh, by the uh, by the demonic forces and by the world system he says in which you once walked notice now he is talking about you instead of we but he's going to include himself and the jews in a, a couple of verses he says in which you once walked according to the course of the world according to the prince of the power of the air the spirit that now works in the sons of disobedience now this foreshadows Ephesians six ten through 20 in spiritual warfare, because there he makes it clear that our enemy that we often think we are fighting in terms of a human being, a human system, is just the front on the face of a spiritual power that is behind us, behind it. And so that's what he is saying here, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. And he says, among whom also we all uh, conducted our ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilled the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of, of wrath, just as the others. So he's including the Jews that were saved as well, because all have sinned, as he says in Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And then verse 4 begins with this great contrast, but God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, not because he looked down the, uh, not because he chose us for some arbitrary decision, which is how people take some of the language in uh, verses uh, four and five, where he chose us before the foundation of the world, and he predestined us. Uh, we'll get into all of those uh, particular issues to understand that. But his motivation is his love and his desire to save all whosoever will will come to the cross to be saved. And so Paul says that even when we were dead in trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. And then he says, by grace you have been saved. And then he sort of gets distracted, and he comes back to that phrase, by grace you have been saved, in verse 8. He talks about the three things that happens. We have been made alive together with Christ. We have been raised up together. We have been made to sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. This is our new position and privilege as church-age believers. And it has a purpose that takes us into the far distant future that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in kindness to us in Christ Jesus. And then our purpose. First, he states how we're saved. By grace, you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And we often stop there. Because that defines our salvation. It is by grace through faith and not of works, and we end it there. But the sentence goes on. In verse 10, it says, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. There's that phrase again. Created in Christ Jesus, our new role in the church for good works. That's God's purpose in us, is that we live a certain way to reflect his holiness, his righteousness, and his glory. That this is not optional. That is our purpose. 
that, again, lays the foundation for what he will say about our walk in righteousness and holiness when we get into chapter 4. And then he begins to shift gears a little bit when we get into uh, verse 11, and he begins to focus on this new privilege and the peace that we have with Christ and the peace that we have with Jews in Christ, saved Jewish believers, because that wall, that barrier between Jew and Gentile is broken down. And we and the Jews have been brought near by the blood of Christ or his death. Why? Verse 14, because he himself is our peace, and he has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation. So remember, as we studied in the background series uh, a couple of lessons in Acts chapter 19 that Paul went to the synagogue first in Ephesus, and he was there for uh, three months. And so there was a large number of Jews that became believers in Jesus as Messiah. And so there was a large Jewish community there, and they came together with Gentiles. They were trying to figure this out because their cultures were so different and there would have been cultural clashes. He's saying, no, the law is now broken down. They had to understand that it wasn't the cash root laws of the Mosaic law anymore. Those weren't in effect anymore, and various other aspects of the Mosaic law were not in effect anymore. And the two, Jew and Gentile, were now one together in Christ. And then in verse 19, he talks about, uses a building metaphor and talks about the fact that now we're all part of one household. This is the church, the church uh, that is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, according to verse 20, and that on that foundation, a whole building is being built together, growing into a holy temple. Now it's the inner sanctum of the temple. That is the body of Christ here is compared to a temple for the dwelling of Christ. And then he says, in whom, that is in Christ, in this building, in this body, we are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the spirit. We won't realize that, I don't believe, in this age like we will in the millennial kingdom when we rule and reign with Christ. And then he ratchets it up a notch, and in verses 1 through 13 in chapter 3, he talks about this new organism that was a mystery previously unrevealed in the Old Testament, and that this new body of Christ, the church, is being given to accomplish his purposes on earth, unlike anything that had ever been accomplished before. And all of this is part of God's plan and purpose. When we look at verses 11 and 12, it's according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. Therefore, he says, do not lose heart in my tribulations for you, which is your glory that we should not become discouraged, that we should not look at the opposition that we face in the world from worldly philosophies, from other religions, from atheists, from secularists, that we are to not lose heart. We are to have boldness because of who we are in Christ. And then this closes with a prayer, a prayer of thanksgiving and glory for what has been provided for us in this new position in Christ Jesus. And he ends with a doxological statement now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. That power of God theme comes up again and again through Ephesians. To him be the glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. And then we have a shift. And we come to the first verse of chapter 4, which is divided at a, at a good place. Paul says, I therefore, the therefore reaches a conclusion based on those three previous chapters. He says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you 
to walk worthy of the calling with which you are called. We do not walk worthy to be called. We do not walk worthy to be saved. We walk worthy because we're already adopted into God's family. We're already called. We are already saved. Because we have this new identity in Christ, we are to have a new way of thinking and a new way of living. So we are to walk worthy, and this is defined as being in unity. This covers verses 1 through 16 of chapter 4. One of the things that is often gone to here is this chapter that talks about, oh, we are to keep the unity of the Spirit, that we have one Lord, one faith, one baptism, we're all one, let you sing kumbaya and put our arms around each other. But that is taken out of context. There is to be a unity in the body of Christ, but not at the expense of doctrine, not at the expense of truth, but on the basis of truth. For the next time this word unity is used in this chapter, it comes down in verse 13. What we have between 3 and 13 is the revelation that Christ ascended and gave gifts to men, gifts that were leadership gifts, apostles and prophets, evangelists and pastor teachers. We studied that on Thursday night about pastor teachers and that their purpose is to equip the saints. This is the the leadership gifts to equip the believers in the body of Christ to maximize uh, the assets that we have been given in Christ and that we are to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith. See, it's a progress. It's growth. This is a major theme that we run into here is that we are to grow. We don't have unity at the beginning because we don't have a a mature understanding of the Scripture. We have to grow together to understand uh, our faith, what we believe, what has been revealed about the Son of God. And so we are to grow up. We're to get out of the diapers, to get out of the short pants, to grow up, to act like adults, spiritual adults. I heard Earl Rodmacher years ago make the comment that the sad reality for the church is that we have a lot of nursery workers. Well, first of all, he said we're the largest nursery in the world, so everybody's a baby. And we have nursery workers, by that he meant pastors, who don't know how to get the babies out of diapers and into adulthood. And so they just keep repeating the same very, very basic spiritual pablum, and nobody ever grows. And that is not what Paul is talking about. In verse 15, he says, we're to speak the truth in love that we may grow up in all things. And then again, in verse 16, he talks talks about that which causes growth for the body uh, edifying itself in love. So that first walk is to walk worthy in unity. Then second in 4.17 to 5.1, he says, walk not like the unbelievers, but in righteousness and holiness. And in this section from 17 to 24, he primarily talks about the things that we're not to do that are characteristic of the unsaved pagan Gentiles. And then he uses a clothing idiom, and he talks about where to take off the old man. Now, that has nothing to do with salvation because they're already saved. Taking off the old man means quit living like you did when you were spiritually dead and an unbeliever. It says, put off this former conduct, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. It's thinking, you know, renovate your thinking and then put on the new man. That is everything that should characterize your spiritual life and your spiritual walk uh, with the Lord and not grieving the Holy Spirit. And then there's a list of six different sins that we're to put away in verses 25 to 30, and then there's a conclusion with just a whole list of different sins that we are to put away, and in contrast, we are to be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. Charizomite means to be gracious to one another, even as Christ forgave you. So we are to understand and meditate on and reflect on what exactly happens when Christ forgives us. What is the basis for that? What does that look like? What are the characteristics of God's forgiveness? We live in a world where forgiveness means that you get off scot-free. But that's not true. 
I can sin, I can confess my sin, God forgives me, but there still may be consequences. Sometimes, many times, God in his grace doesn't lower the boom, and I don't face consequences. Then there are times when I do face consequences, and then there are other times when those consequences may be uh, softened a little bit, but there are still opportunities to grow and to learn. The uh, third command is to walk in love in 5, 2 through 7. The chapter break uh, comes after verse 1. It should be read at the end of chapter 4, even as, uh, in, as Christ forgave you, therefore be imitators of God as uh, dear children, imitating God in forgiving one another. And then next, we're to walk in love as Christ has loved us. And so this is developed to understand, again, this is part of loving one another, is putting aside these various sins that have implications and hurt and harm for other people. The next command is to walk in the light. This is a critical chapter on understanding the spiritual life and spiritual walk. We're to walk as children of light, not as children of darkness, because we are children of light. But it also tells us that even though we're children of light and saved, we can live just like we did when we were unbelievers. And so we're to no longer walk as we did before we were saved. And so uh, in verse 13 we read, but all things that are exposed are manifest by the light. The light exposes is the Word of God. And so we come to study the Word of God, to read the Word of God daily, to humble ourselves under uh, God's revelation so that our sins are are exposed so we can learn to walk in the light. And then next, fifth, we are to walk carefully in biblical wisdom. See then, he says in verse 15, that you walk circumspectly, or that we walk carefully, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. And as part of wisdom, we are to be filled by means of the Spirit. Now, what I've taught many times is being filled by the Spirit doesn't mean we get more of the Spirit. It is that the Spirit fills us with something. When we are walking by the Spirit, He fills us with His Word. Because the results of being filled by the Spirit here have to do, first of all, with worship. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. That has to do with singing in worship. Then prayer in worship, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then in our love for one another, which involves submitting to one another uh, in the fear of God. And this impacts five different group in five different relationships. Wives submitting to your husbands, husbands loving your wives as Christ loved the church. Uh, we have parents who are to um, uh, raise up their children in the nurture or in the admonition of the Lord that's directed to fathers. Uh, children are to obey your parents. Uh, bond servants, we would relate that to employees, are to be obedient to your masters and work as if you are serving the Lord Jesus Christ. And then masters are also to treat their servants or their employees in love, seeking the best for them. And that brings that section to a close. And then he concludes with something different. In no longer walking, using that metaphor, it is standing firm in the power of God. And we have this tremendous chapter that he's alluded to this, this spiritual conflict, this spiritual warfare, from chapter 1 to chapter 2 to chapter 4, this is presented. And he says, finally, uh, as he presents his conclusion, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. It is God's power, God's might, not our fight. It is what David said. It is the battle is the Lord's. It is not our battle. And so we are to put on God's armor, not our armor. We face problems according to his standards and not our standards because the battle is against invisible forces, the uh, principalities and powers and rulers of darkness of this age. And so we have to learn what the armor is and how we put that armor on so that we can be effective 
uh, warriors in spiritual combat. And then he comes to his uh, to his basic clothes and his uh, greetings to various people in the last four verses of the chapter. So that's our flyover. We have to understand what our riches are in Christ, the wealth that we've been given, the, the unbelievable spiritual assets and power that Christ has given us, and then we need to live on the basis of that. It doesn't happen overnight. It is a growth process, but it is something we have to focus on day in, day out, week after week after week. You don't make it all, it doesn't happen all at once. It takes time, and as we walk by the Spirit, God is the one who takes his word and uses that to transform our thinking and to transform our lives. But if we're not taking in the word, and by that I mean if we're not reading it for ourselves, if we're not taking the time to listen to the pastor teach the word and to feed the sheep, then that growth does not take place. And so this is a challenge we're going to have, and we'll come back next time and begin in Ephesians 1.1 with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you so much that we have this great epistle to teach us who we are, what we have, what you have given us in Christ, this unique entity of the body of Christ, the church, this unique dispensation that is distinct from all previous dispensations and all that will follow, where we are identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection, and we are made alive again, and we are raised with him and seated with him positionally in the heavenlies. This is our position and the basis for our power. Father, we pray that you would challenge us to understand these things and to take the steps necessary to come to understand this and use it in our lives. Father, we know that there are many people around the world who listen. Some are live streaming, some listen later. We do not know who is listening, but maybe here or maybe around the world somewhere someone is listening and they're not sure about their eternal salvation, not sure of their eternal destiny. Father, we want to make it clear that salvation is not based on works. It's not based on Bible reading, Bible study. It's not based on prayer. It's not based on spiritual disciplines. It's not based on being obedient. It is based on trusting in Jesus Christ as Savior. Jesus died on the cross for our sins. He paid the penalty. The debt was paid. The certificate of debt was wiped out so that all that remains is for us to believe, to accept Uh, what Christ did on the cross. And at that instant, you make us alive together with him so that we are new creatures in Christ with new position and new privileges, new assets. And we pray that, that after that, that is the issue of walking with our Lord. Teach us how we should do this as we study and read your word. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.